Okay, so anyone who knows me, and honestly, at this point, anyone who listens to the podcast, because I guess we've just (laughs) gotten real close around here, knows that I do not wear bras. And like, that's not some sort of an over-exaggeration. You can ask any of my friends. I truly do not ever wear bras. However, there have recently been some circumstances where like, I just have to. I've been saying yes to more things. I feel like we've been going to more events and there are just some outfits. I got to do it. And when I tell you I have finally found a bra that makes wearing one bearable. Like I'm never going to be an everyday bra wearer. It's not in the cars for me. But when I have to, the only bras I can wear are skims, which I'll get into the specific ones in a second, but we all know this comes as no surprise. Like I have been an OG diehard skims fan since day one. I am a fan of every single product they make. You know the way I feel about the underwear, the clothes, all of it. But now adding bras to the mix, specifically the Fits Everybody t-shirt bra, because You guys know the way I feel about the Fits Everybody collection. I could talk about that for forever, but specifically the t-shirt bra, it's just so comfortable. I don't know, the straps don't dig into you. It's probably the only bra I've ever worn where when I get home, I'm not like dying to take it off, which I cannot express how massive of a feat that is for someone like me. It's just comfortable and it just does what it needs to do. And I am such a fan, which like no surprise, I love everything Skims makes, but here to confirm the bras are as good as you would think that they are. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A through 46H. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hi guys, I'm Emma. And I'm Julie. And we're the girls behind Comments by Celebs. And welcome back to another episode. Hey, Jewel. I am. Monday morning, how you feeling? feeling just very excited to talk about Britney today. I know. I was going to say, if it's okay with you, I kind of don't even want to do an intro because I just want to get into the Britney conversation. And nothing has ever been more okay with me. (laughs) I figured it would be. I just wanted to ask. (laughs) So as you guys know, every week we're highlighting a Black-owned business. And this week is called Copper Wings Candle Company. So these are non-toxic candles. They're made with coconut wax and they have a wooden wick. So I just really liked this brand. And as always, I will put all the information in the description. Okay, Joel, you ready? So ready. Well, I guess since it's Monday, we may as well just take a second to talk about the Super Bowl. And to be honest, I don't really know if this is a popular opinion or an unpopular opinion because it seems to be really split. But I really enjoyed the weekend's performance. Yeah, I did too. Twitter was definitely split. I don't think anybody thought it was bad. I just think some people were a little underwhelmed. Yeah, I just think at the very least, you have to acknowledge the fact that he's really kind of committed to this role or to this vision because he went to the VMAs with the bruised face. He performed at the AMAs with the bandages. So I think this performance was kind of a culmination of all of the visions that he's been building. Yeah, he definitely committed to the role. Also, in my opinion, I think for a lot of people, this was really the year of the weekend. And obviously with the Grammy snubs, it's really just nice to see him have his big moment after such a momentous year. Completely. I completely agree with that. Also, her performed America the Beautiful. Jasmine Sullivan performed Whitney Houston's version of the Star Spangled Banner with Eric Church and Amanda Gorman read poetry, which all were exceptional. Personally, for me, Jasmine Sullivan is kind of my MVP of the night, but that's just because I was so blown away by her voice. Yeah, I so understand. I so agree. Okay, shall we get into Britney? We shall. Okay, I first just want to say, obviously, we're going to be talking about the documentary. And I recognize that we're kind of playing to two different audiences here because there are the people listening that have already watched it, and then there are the people listening that haven't. So 
I really hope that we discuss this in a way that is interesting for both parties and it's not like a full recap to the point where it's repetitive, but I just know that Julie and I haven't discussed this yet because we've been waiting to talk about it on air and I have a lot to say and I'm really excited to get into it. I couldn't have more to say. I also think that if you haven't watched yet and you have an interest in this, I would pause here, watch Brittany, and then come back to the podcast to listen. See, yeah, a lot of people thought, and I honestly did too originally, I didn't realize that it was just a one, you know, one and a half hour documentary. I originally had thought that it was like a six part thing. So that may be intimidating people, but it's only, you know, roughly an hour and a half. And it's called Framing Britney Spears. It's presented by the New York Times. And it's, you know, one episode of this, these series that they're doing basically. Right. Let me just start by saying it's not necessarily that what we were learning here was new, or at least for us, I feel like we've kind of been researching this stuff for a while now, but when you see it in the way that it was shown and all of the visuals are right in front of you, coupled with the narration by people that were so heavily involved at the time, it's incredibly striking. And I think I saw, I want to say it was Yashar that tweeted like, I've always had a soft spot for Britney Spears, but this documentary radicalized me. And I feel like that's a sentiment that could be echoed by a lot of people. Definitely. What happens with Britney a lot of the times is that people remember her eras as, you know, individual things. So they remember the start of her career. They remember Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Then they remember what happened in 2007, 2008. Then they remember Vegas residency and they remember now. What I think a lot of people fail to do is put those all together and that's what this documentary was able to do in a in a short period of time. This is something where you could have had, like you said, it could have been a six-part series where they went through and every episode was an hour long and you still would be missing information because there's so much there. But I think the reason that people felt really attached to this or felt, quote, radicalized by it is because the information had never been presented to them in a way that was a domino effect where you really clearly saw how every era of her life led to this moment where we are now. Yes. And I actually think, even though personally, selfishly, I would love a longer series, I actually think for the purposes of getting this in front of the masses, this was the best way to do it because it's a lot easier to get people to commit to an hour and a half than it is to get people to commit to a six-part series. I know, of course, if you're listening to this, you're probably like us and you would watch that in a heartbeat. But I think that a lot more people that maybe were completely unfamiliar with this actually took the time to sit down and watch it. And really, that's the goal. I mean, awareness is a huge goal of this. Yeah, definitely. I so agree with that. So the way it started was with this woman, Felicia, which as if you watch, you know, and she was from Kenwood, Louisiana, the same town that Brittany grew up in. She's known Brittany since she was five. And she was really a big part of the documentary because you got to see not only her relationship with Brittany, but also how her relationship from like a working role progressed as different management was at play. And it was just so kind of striking to me that this woman, if you watched it, you know what I mean. And even if you did it, you can kind of imagine from the way I'm going to describe her. She was just, had the demeanor of somebody that just couldn't hurt a fly. So sweet, such mm-hmm. a small town vibe, genuinely cared so deeply for Brittany and you could see it. And her role was kind of defined to the public as like Brittany's assistant, but she didn't really know what she was. In a lot of ways, she was Brittany's chaperone. In a lot of ways, she was kind of just a companion. And you see that in the very beginning, the person closest to her, which was this woman, Felicia, really did have her best interest at heart. And so the reason I think it was so significant that they started with her was because you watched how going from that to what it ended up really two different ends of the spectrum. 
Also, something I think that happens with Britney a lot when we're delving into this topic is that there are very few people who are close to her and know her genuinely and know her from the beginning able to come forward or willing to come forward and talk about what's going on or what they've observed. And this was somebody who had been there for the entire ride start to finish and was able to offer a perspective that I think has been missing in so many cases. Like she was Britney's guardian for a while. And they really talk about in the beginning of the documentary, how, you know, right off the bat, they frame it that her dad was kind of not really involved from the beginning that her mom was raising the other kids. So when Britney was going off and, you know, post Mickey Mouse Clubhouse and really trying to make it, Felicia was really the person who was there taking her around and acting as her guardian because her parents couldn't be there or wouldn't be there. Yeah. I mean, her parents, they had two other children, obviously. They did not have a lot of money at the time. And I think specifically for Lynn, or at least the way that she kind of described it, is that like, when you are trusting your daughter with somebody, you want that to be somebody that you trust so deeply yourself. And they knew that she didn't have an ulterior motive. Right. And something that frames the whole documentary right off the bat is they talk about Jamie, Brittany's father, and they say from the very beginning, Jamie was kind of financially obsessed in two different ways. He was very concerned with how they were going to be able to afford all of the stuff that went into making Britney, Britney, the voice lessons, the management, the travel, all of that. But he was also really concerned and, you know, maybe even borderline obsessed with the financials that would come from Britney being Britney. So obviously so much of the conservatorship that they get into later has to do with the financial aspect, what her dad is making from that, what he stands to gain in that. So the fact that they kind of framed it from the very start as being about Jamie obsessed with the financial element, I think really brought together the whole documentary and what we're dealing with now. Oh, completely. Because when they had that woman who was a child talent agent come on in the beginning and kind of speak about her experience with Jamie, that was a perspective that is really, really different than somebody 10 years down the line talking about it. Because this goes to show that from the very beginning, that was a huge point of investment for him. Right, exactly. So, of course, you know, the documentary kind of takes us through her rise to fame after Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. And and I guess I should preface by saying this entire documentary really brought to the surface the misogyny and the way that women were treated. But in the beginning, you know, her entire image was focused on like, quote, purity and this level of innocence. And they kind of spoke about how when she was around 17 years old, around 1998, it was almost as if the media started to become obsessed with her having, quote, sex appeal or how she was portraying herself. And if anything veered off the path of innocence, the way that the media and reporters treated that. It was interesting the way it was presented at the time in the sense that the media was obsessed with this portrayal of innocence she had. But at the same time, they were also obsessed with viewing her in a sexual way. So what would happen was she would present herself as kind of the picture of innocence. That was her brand. That was what the label put forward. The media and the public would take that and then use that innocence to kind of exploit it for sex. And then as soon as Britney, you know, herself kind of delved into that angle, she would then be shamed for it. 
Completely. And that, by the way, is just representative of the way that the media treats women in general. You know what I mean? It's like prying and so obsessed with their level of sexuality, yet they are not allowed to claim that themselves because the second that they claim it and actually control that narrative, suddenly it turns into a slut-shaming situation. And it's a very unfair line and boundary that still exists today. I think it's definitely lessened, but it still exists today, of course. Of course. The media aspect of it, I think for a lot of people, was one of the more shocking things of the documentary. I think it was something that a lot of people didn't realize or was never faced with because when it was happening at the time, you weren't looking at it with the goggles that you have now where you're like, this is so unbelievably uncomfortable and wrong and inappropriate. So it didn't phase you. And now we're really, the media obviously has its issues and has its misogyny. I'm not taking away from that. It is nowhere near what it was then. So when you're watching it now in 2021 and you're seeing the questions Britney's being asked about her sex life and if she's a virgin and her breasts, like, all of those things are so unbelievably uncomfortable because it's something you really haven't been faced with or really haven't been faced with with the knowledge that you have now. I thought something that was really interesting about the documentary was the parallels that they drew between Britney around 17 years old in 1998 and then the Monica Lewinsky scandal, which also was around 1998. And I just thought that the entire like concept of kind of slut shaming and the way that the women were treated, personally, when I had thought about Britney, I had never put it in terms of Monica Lewinsky. I had never really recognized that those two things were happening at the exact same time. And that the way that they kind of put it in the documentary was that media in general at that time had a fascination with sex and they were talking about sex in a way that they hadn't before. And I don't think that I had connected the dots, even though I'd looked into this a lot, I don't think I had connected the dots between Monica Lewinsky and that. Right. And that was a really interesting aspect of it where they're kind of talking about how A, the Monica Lewinsky aspect of it was so poorly perceived by the public and so poorly represented to the point where it was not represented as an authority figure taking advantage of an intern. Monica Lewinsky was really presented to the public as kind of, quote, a a slut. I don't really know any other way to put it. That's how it was presented. And then you had Britney Spears, which was presented as the innocence as being the polar opposite of it. And what ended up happening was people drawing the parallels and people trying to say that, you know, here's Britney, the face of innocence and Monica Lewinsky, the face of, you know, the woman you wouldn't want to bring home to your family. I think what happened really was it really made her want to come out and present herself in a way that the public was denying her of. And then you really had the public struggling with this idea of like sexualizing the girl next door. Completely. I also want to say that around this time, so when she was 17 years old, 18 years old, a lot of what was being talked about in the documentary was that it wasn't as if these decisions were being made for her. She was very involved. Her backup dancers, people that were closely linked her at the time said like she was very involved in all of the facets of her career. And so that's another reason that why now it's so additionally terrible because it wasn't like, this is how it always was. Right. That's kind of what they talk about. And again, that was a real conflicting thing as well, because on one hand you had all of these people coming forward saying, Brittany has so much control over what we're doing. Everything we do gets approved by Brittany. Most of the things that we do are Brittany's ideas. This is what she wants to present. But again, her image was still being so heavily controlled where she was being presented to the public as the face of innocence and the face of purity. And that was something she didn't have control over. So it was two very conflicting things. 
It was really hard to watch, to be honest with you. Not that I didn't know, but it was really, really hard to watch her sit there at almost a press conference and have the question asked if she's a virgin. And her having to say into the microphone, she's still a virgin, she would like to save herself until marriage. Almost, you could sense the level of intrusiveness and nobody around her was doing anything to stop that happening, you know? Right. And that also brings up, which was such an like crucial part of Britney's life and a crucial part of the documentary was her relationship with Justin Timberlake and the end of that relationship. This is this is not a good week to be Justin Timberlake, I'll tell you that much. No, definitely not. It was almost the kind of thing though, you knew, if you are, are at all familiar with this story, you knew this was coming. You know what I mean? Like somehow it's been buried. Somehow the way that he profited off of the trauma and profited off of the misogyny, somehow kind of just was under the rug for a very long time. And you always knew that it was going to be brought into the public more, but I guess now this is just the time that it's happening. Right. The Justin Timberlake aspect of things is so like multi-layered in the sense that their relationship itself, when they were dating, I mean, it was everywhere. It was all anybody spoke about. They were America's sweetheart couple. So when they broke up, And what happened or what supposedly happened was that Britney had cheated on Justin with Wade Robson is the rumor. Wade Robson is actually one of the Michael Jackson accusers. He was a backup dancer, I think, for both of them. He was very involved with that side of the music industry, specifically Britney, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, all of that. Um, When they broke up, what happened was Justin Timberlake really profited off of that. He wrote Cry Me a River. I think it was like the day that they had broken up. And he had cast a double of Britney in that music video. And it was mortifyingly embarrassing for her. And then what happened from there is the media ran with this narrative again of innocent girl cheats on boyfriend, turn that into a slut shaming thing. And from there, that really had the domino effect of the way Britney was perceived sexually by the public. Yes. And when you watch her, in that Diane Sawyer interview. And Diane Sawyer is basically telling her that the entire world is almost mad at her for what may or may not have gone down in her relationship. And you were watching her kind of navigate that. It was, it was heart wrenching to watch. It was the entire buildup of her career before we even get into the Kevin Federline stuff was so hard to watch. And then to have to watch the next phase of it with the way the media really was treating her, it was, it like was painful. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about the paparazzi a lot because that obviously played a huge role. And I think them having that one paparazzi guy as one of the um, interviewees, even though I firmly disagree with pretty much everything he was saying was a perspective that was necessary because paparazzi today is not the way that it was. It's still toxic, but it's nowhere near the way that it was. And the detrimental effect that that had really, really was brought to the surface in this documentary. Yeah, absolutely. And basically what happened was from the time of the Justin Timberlake breakup into Kevin Federline was not a long period of time. And you just kind of saw the decline of this very carefully orchestrated image that had been put out. Kevin Federline was this backup dancer that Brittany was dating and then in a very whirlwind, quick relationship, all of a sudden they were engaged and married. And that was the red flag to the public of being like, okay, what's going on with Britney? 
And then obviously from there, it was just continued to be downhill. Yeah, I, I definitely think that can be pinpointed as one of the moments where the public kind of took it upon themselves to say, you know what, she's no longer okay. Because when you have America's sweetheart go from dating somebody like Justin Timberlake, who was also perceived incredibly well by the public at the time as being the boy version of her, when you go from that, this mega successful pop star that you're dating to this backup dancer that seems like he's exploiting you and using you and you know, you're being taken advantage of the public is like, what is going on? It's a red flag. And it admittedly was, it's not like everything was okay and normal with Britney at the time, the Kevin Federline relationship and how quickly it happened and the wedding and everything that went on and the show that they actually had released. Um, so people were getting an inside view of it. Things were starting to go awry and it was normal. The whole point of, of what they were trying to explain was every single thing in Britney's life was a domino effect from the point of the way her dad was in the beginning, the way the media treated her, it all led her to this moment. So you were kind of watching the gradual decline of her mental health in a documentary. Yes, exactly. And the thing with the Kevin Federline situation was it really just plays on the concept that when there is a figure like Britney Spears that is seen, you know, with so much innocence and is seen kind of like this girl next door and America's sweetheart, that the public feels this real sense of ownership real sense of ownership over her and over her narrative and over her story, which is why the Kevin Federline plotline that kind of got thrown in, people almost felt, you know, of course they were fascinated and they were entertained, but they almost felt a little bit betrayed, I feel, going from the, the Justin Timberlake one, which of course now we can look at and say how problematic that mindset even is. But that was kind of the sentiment at the time. Right, exactly. And then Britney gets married to K-Fed. They soon after announced that Britney's pregnant. And this is kind of the moment where they pinpoint as being the level up of media fascination. That was the level up of paparazzi and the invasiveness into her life and the obsession with her. What happens then is the media is so obsessed with her, the paparazzi will not leave her alone. It then creates this narrative that Britney is an unfit mother. And that is probably the point in terms of her mental health where things started to go really, really not right. The, the accusations that were against her, her driving with Sean in the front seat of her car, trying to get away from the paparazzi, all of these things that were so invasive and so caught on camera really created this idea that Britney was unwell and unfit before anything even happened in terms of, you know, the actual quote breakdown that she had, that narrative was already being put in place. Right, which Lynn in her book wrote about the fact that she believes that Britney was suffering from postpartum, of course, with zero attention, with zero sensitivity, with zero any sort of care for what could have been going on for her. And I think that, you know, it's one thing, there are a lot of media attacks that I would imagine hit really hard, but I can't necessarily imagine one that must hit harder than the entire world telling you from knowing absolutely nothing, by the way, that you are an unfit mother when having no idea what you may be going through from a mental health perspective. That is like, you know, even when she was talking about it, I believe with Matt Lauer in that interview, you saw the pain in her eyes because that is an attack that no woman should ever have to undertake. Exactly. And 
the kids play such an important role in what then transpires is because everything that kind of went down after the fact, after her and Kevin Federline have their second child and then announce their divorce, everything that happens afterwards was kind of a result of Brittany and her kids and wanting her kids and trying to balance out that life while dealing with her own mental health issues and everything being exacerbated by the fact that she wasn't being allowed to see her kids. Yeah. I mean, you see, and you really saw clearly in this documentary that that was the catalyst in a lot of ways for what caused her to kind of have this quote breakdown, by the way, which I think anybody in that situation would have undergone because I don't really think there's a pain that can be mimicked of being a mother and having your kids or feeling as though your kids are being taken from you. That's something that cuts deep. So that would be painful regardless. But then on top of it, literally doing that action, going to Kevin Federline's house, trying to get in. And not only can you not get in, but you have paparazzi following you and documenting that that experience. How does anybody respond to that in any sort of rational way? No. And and there was nothing rational going on. I mean, the timeline, I think, of post-Kevin Federline, like immediately right after the divorce, is probably the most interesting period of pop culture, like, ever, especially for me. Like, I was I was watching them kind of go through everything that happened during this time, and it, like, physically pained me in a way that, like, all I could think about was how vividly I remembered this, and, like, I felt like I was... I don't even remember how old I was at the time, 11, 12, watching all of this unfold for the first time. And, you know, it takes you through. They announced their divorce. Then Britney starts hanging out with Paris Hilton. And that is the media frenzy of a lifetime. I mean, the the two people that the media are probably the most fascinated with are now hanging out. You add Lindsay to the equation and you have the bimbo summit night, which is I think that that one headline is probably the most iconic headline ever, most well-known. Um, like if there was a pop culture museum, that would be the biggest exhibit. And then you go from there where Britney's, you know, being now accused of this being this wild party girl that doesn't have any control of her life. She doesn't care about her kids. She doesn't care about her career. All she wants to do is party. That's the portrayal being put out. She's obviously dealing with mental health struggles And the media and the paparazzi are exacerbating that every step of the way. So then what you have happened is that Britney has that one night where she's told she cannot see her kids. Kevin Federline has custody of them, which is such an interesting dynamic because you're now Britney going from being the person where everyone's like, why are you with this loser to being the one that's told he's the more fit parent and you can't see your kids anymore. And that's what transpired the night that she shaved her head where she wanted to see her kids. Kevin would not let her see them, would not let her near them. She drove to her hairdresser, said, I want to shave my head. Her hairdresser refused. And she shaved her own head. And at the time, the way it was, you know, portrayed or the way that we understood it was this was like the peak of her breakdown. When in reality, what was happening was this was Britney Spears the first time that she was you know, taking control of her life. Cutting her hair was so unbelievably symbolic. It was just something that was a symbolism that we didn't understand or didn't know much about. But for her whole life, her image had been so unbelievably controlled that she took, you know, the razor and shaved her head because that was the first ounce of control she had over her own body. It's actually, I'm glad that you 
brought up that exact point because I wanted to touch on that for a second. When they're talking about her going into the hairstylist and you know the, the woman refused and she said, give me the razor, the paparazzi around there at the time recalled her continually saying, I just, I don't want to be touched. I just don't want anybody touching me. And it's so true that the symbolism there, which was completely lost on us at the time, at least myself, I was definitely too young to understand, was so striking and so in your face because it was really fighting back at this perfectly curated image. And I think that her really taking the razor in her own hands and just saying, I don't want to be touched. This is my life and I'm going to do whatever I see fit. I have to say, honestly, I almost felt a sense, and I don't know if this is resonates with anybody listening and you know, we were too young at the time to understand, but I almost felt this sense of guilt that like, no, of course we weren't the paparazzi, but we were benefiting off of this from an entertainment perspective. This was the most fascinating thing in the world. And the denial of the symbolism and the mental health struggles that were happening is really, really hard to ignore here. And you almost feel bad for not being as tuned into it at the time. Yeah, I mean, every ounce of it was exploited. And, you know, there are stories about the people at People Magazine popping champagne when Britney, you know, was, you know, carried away in a stretcher when Britney had the umbrella incident because they were making so much money from it. The amount of money that was coming in from the paparazzi was unfathomable. It was not comparable to any other celebrities. Millions of dollars for a single shot of Britney at the time. And that's also such an interesting part of the documentary is when it delves into Britney's relationship with the paparazzi, where it started out as a very symbiotic relationship where she was benefiting. She needed them. She was getting publicity from them. They were, you know, blowing her up. They were making her the biggest star in the world. And then at a certain point, it switches where the paparazzi are no longer helpful to her. They are just exploitative of her. But Britney's relationship herself with the paparazzi, which I don't even think the documentary could even begin to scratch the surface of in an hour because it's so interesting, is it really reaches a point when Britney is dating a paparazzi. She's dating Anon, who was somebody who stalked her, who was watching her every single move, following her all over the place, and they end up dating. And something that a lot of people have spoken about through the years is Britney really had this thing with the paparazzi where she was kind of conflating love and attention with what they were doing, where it was almost kind of presented like a Stockholm syndrome thing. It was something that happened, I think, with her where she conflated that incorrectly and she kind of confused that media attention with love. So it was this really crazy relationship where they were terrible to her. They were awful. She wanted nothing to do with them. She they asked the paparazzi at one point in the documentary and, and the guy saying, um, you know, she never really told us she didn't want us to go. And, and the interview is like, what about when she kept saying, leave me alone, leave me alone. And the guy was like, well, she didn't really mean it. She did mean it. But at the same time, I think she was incredibly confused about what the paparazzi actually meant to her. Yes, completely. You could tell that there was not really a clear line in terms of the way that she viewed them. I think objectively, we can say that the way that they handled it was absolutely wrong and it was on them. But I think that internally, yeah, she didn't have necessarily the most clear outlook. And I was a little bit surprised. I don't know if you were, but I was a little bit surprised that the documentary didn't talk about her relationship with that paparazzi guy. It was, it was almost glazed over. Did you, did you expect that they would? I was surprised by that. 
there were two things that they had left out of the documentary that I thought were huge points that were missed on. The relationship with Adnan was one of them. I thought it was it was weird to be able to delve into the paparazzi and not touch on that because that was such a huge aspect of it. And the Stockholm Syndrome relationship with the paparazzi was such a huge aspect of it. The second thing that they didn't touch on that I was really surprised about was when they start to delve into the conservatorship, you know, obviously after everything is going down, she's being put on 5150 psych holds and she's being taken out of her house. That's when the conservatorship comes into play. And they talk a lot about the financials of the conservatorship. You know, her dad is now in charge of her financials, in charge of the estate. Um, One of the things that they really left out was Brittany was spending an exorbitant amount of money at this time. She was almost bankrupt because of how much she was spending. And that was a huge piece of the conservatorship as well being put in place was, and I'm not saying it should have been her dad necessarily, but a huge piece of it was that they needed to get her financials under control. Otherwise she was going to have nothing left. Yes, they did not touch on that, which I think was probably a little bit of a strategic decision, to be honest. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because, but that's, that's when we've even spoken about this even recently. We've said like it's hard to know exactly what parts of the conservatorship may have benefited her at a time and may still have some levels of being advantageous. There's there could be certain parts of it that maybe aren't done in a conservatorship but some sort of, you know, guidance, but what happened was what started which in my belief or at least from what I've seen as maybe a necessary step was then so taken advantage of to, to, to a way that really had no kind of bearing on reality. Exactly. And one of the points that they really highlight was that I think was probably the most interesting point of the whole documentary was the beginning of the conservatorship. Her dad gets put in charge. Okay. The conservator at the time was probably somewhat necessary in terms of getting Britney's health under control and her mental health, she was not in a good place. That's not an exaggeration. That's not a lie. That's not a media thing. Britney was not in a good place at this time. The conservatorship or something of an equivalent thing being put in place was necessary at that time for a short period of time. What happens though, is that Britney then hires her own lawyer and she tells the lawyer, the lawyer speaks about this in the documentary, they meet at the Beverly Hills Hotel and the lawyer says, the one thing Brittany said, it had nothing to do with not wanting the conservatorship. All she said was she did not want her father in charge. And when they go to court about the conservatorship, the judge says to the lawyer, I have Brittany's medical records in front of me. I won't be sharing them with you. You're not privy to that information. But according to the records in front of me, Brittany is not well enough to appoint her own lawyer. The lawyer has to be court appointed. And the lawyer who Brittany had appointed or had picked herself, said at the time, I never understood that. When I had my meeting with Brittany, she seemed of at least sound enough mind to be able to know what she wanted and what was in the best interest for her. So for the judge to say she couldn't even have her own lawyer was always striking. And he said it's something he still does not understand to this day and still doesn't know what are in those medical records to this day. Yes, because when he was explaining it, he did not view their meeting 
as at all irrational behavior from her or having an irrational or non-consistent with the truth view of what was going on. Meaning she understood that this conservatorship was happening. She wasn't even really pushing back against it. He repeatedly said the one thing was just the specification that she did not want her father. And there's something about those records that he doesn't know. We still don't know that for some reason, the judge felt that she was not of sound mind. But that one decision that that judge made years ago has I mean, talk about a domino effect. That one thing was was potentially what caused the rise of all of this. Right. And the second half of the documentary really delves into the whole, because the reason the documentary was made in the first place was really to explore the conservatorship and the free Britney movement as it is today. So the second half of the documentary really delves into the financials of it what the conservators all stand to gain from keeping Britney under a conservatorship and the general idea of conservatorships in general, where you have this one woman who had worked on conservatorship cases and they ask her, have any of the conservatives under what you've seen or the people you've worked with been able to get out of their conservatorship? And she says none of the ones that she's worked with. So I think that's kind of where like the first part of the documentary is really easy to understand and digest because you're just watching the facts of what happened to her unfold in front of you. The second half really leaves you with a lot of questions about the conservatorship because you're left really wondering what elements of this are still necessary. How does she get out of this? Does anybody have a clue what to do? And it kind of seems like everybody who's involved in this, who wants to do something about it, has no next steps to take legally they don't know what to do they don't know where it leaves us and you're kind of left wondering a how she gets out of this and b is this something that still needs to be in place in some capacity or is every ounce and every element of this completely wrong it was very chilling when that woman who's worked on conservatorship said that in her experience she's never seen somebody get out of it it was like a kind of moment where there wasn't a sound effect but if there was it kind of would have been like a unanimous horror. Do you know what I mean? It almost feels a little bit defeating. Not saying that that will be the case for her. I, of course, have hope. And she also has the entire world on her side, which I don't know how much public pressure feeds into these types of situations, but it was a little bit chilling to hear that, to be honest. Yeah. Brittany is really lucky in the sense that not everybody has fans that care about them so much. And her fans are it's a fan base I've never seen and they really, really are fighting for her. And they, you know, there's a point where they introduce um, the podcast hosts of Britney's Graham, which are the people who really blew this conservatorship story open um, because the conservator was something that people kind of knew was in place, but it wasn't something that was being explored. And when the hosts of Britney's Graham put forward that episode last year where they were like, there's something's not right here. And they were kind of exploring it and they got that voicemail from, the paralegal at the office being like, this is Brittany's, you know, in a, you know, facility right now and it's against her will. And here are all the horrors of it. That's how we really got to this place. And I thought bringing them in was such an interesting point of view because they were really the people that called attention to it. And ever since then, everybody else has gotten on board. But not everybody has fans or not everybody has people in their lives that have the ability to, you know, explore those things. The Something that the Free Britney movement really did was call attention to conservatorships in general. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that your average person was necessarily very knowledgeable on the idea of a conservatorship 
until it came to Britney. Of course, she's not the only person that's been in this, but I'm saying that that idea as a concept, I don't think was even really that much brought to public attention or that spoken about until Britney. Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. I also just want to say in terms of the um, Britney's Graham podcast host, I agree with you. I think it was so excellent that they were there and that that voicemail um, was talked about, et cetera. But I just want to acknowledge, I know not everybody is a fan of the entire concept of their show. Like I think at least what I've seen in some of the, the fandoms is like, they find that almost obsession with the social media presence could potentially be toxic towards her. I don't have that opinion. I just want to acknowledge that, that I understand that some people do feel that way. Right. So Mother's Day is coming up and I know sometimes it can be difficult figuring out what to get your mom because realistically no gift is going to do justice for how much you love and appreciate her. But I'm sure you've done the classic, you know, bathrobe, candle, sweaters, gift cards. If you're looking to mix it up, I want to tell you about Aura Frames. So they were named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter. And it's just the kind of gift that is guaranteed to bring joy because realistically, there's nothing our parents love more than seeing us. So for them to be able to see more of us, even if you don't live close by, like that is probably the best gift you could give a parent. They're Wi-Fi connected. They come with unlimited storage. So you can share as many photos as you want from your phone to your mom's frame. And it's easy to set up. It takes about two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. We have one in my kitchen and... Every time my dad comes down for breakfast, like it just makes him so happy. There's pictures of me, pictures of me and my parents when I was little, pictures of my grandparents. Like I think as a parent, you never get sick of that. And it's just the kind of gift I know she will love. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code CBC at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Can we talk about the MTV documentary? Absolutely. Because this was really the first time that we were seeing the dynamic between Jamie and Brittany, especially in the time when, quote, everything was fine. This was not like we were getting up close and personal with Brittany from, at least from the media side, when like she was really off the rails here. This was, at least what was trying to be conveyed, was like things were good. It was, it was a good, happy family and things were going well. That's always the confusing part of the era that we're in now is that when the MTV documentary came out, it was during the circus era. Britney's getting back at work. Britney is, um, she's performing again. She's putting out an album. She's going to be touring soon or it's in the process of touring. And A, it was the first time where you saw the dynamic with her and Jamie, which was obviously a little bit of a PR thing. You know, you have him bringing her breakfast and saying this is what she ate when she was a little girl. Um, you have Brittany kind of imitating what her dad is like. But then the most interesting part of it is that you also have a point where Brittany for the first time talks about the conservatorship and talks about what she would do if she didn't have so many people controlling her. And Brittany seems in a really great place during this. Even though she's talking about the conservatorship, she's clearly very aware of what it is, what it means, what she's doing right now. It doesn't appear like you know, she's being forced to do anything she doesn't want to do or that she's not in an okay mental state to be doing it. And that's what the documentary really showed. I think the confusion of what people have now is that when you contrast, you expected that the breakdown, there was no backup. Like things kind of fixed itself out. But when you look at Britney now, 
you can tell something's not 100% right. And I think that what a lot of people's perception of it was, was that things never got back to 100% normal after what happened in 2008. And what the documentary, the MTV documentary shows is that things seemed like they were really up. So when you compare that to what she had done, you know, things were up. She was doing shows again. She was having her Vegas residency. Like she was appearing on late night. She seemed totally okay. There's a point where that then switches again to what you have now where you're like, is Britney okay? Because when you look at her social media presence, it doesn't seem like the same girl that was in the documentary. Yeah, but to go back for a second to the documentary, there was that one scene when she basically just vocalized the feeling of being controlled. It wasn't that she wasn't in, that she didn't appear to be in sound mind. She absolutely did, but she said that basically that she feels like, you know, she is just unable to have the type of independence that she really craves. So that was still on display, even though it was all kind of wrapped up in this like, quote, healthy setting. Absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I think that's the point though, is that it seemed like even though she was still under this conservatorship, which was weird, I think to the, or it should have been weird to the public to see that somebody who seemed so in control of themselves and so aware of what was going on to still be under this. Um, just the point that I was I was making is that it seems like there is some sort of disconnect between then and now again. Do you, do you get what I mean? Yes, I very much understand and agree with your point. And I think kind of what's interesting is that in terms of what we're getting from Brittany right now, we are getting glimpses of her because we get her social media, which whether that's her you know, that's somebody else. I, I believe that her kind of like pseudo social media manager came out recently saying that Britney sends her what to post, et cetera. But it's, it's interesting because it's like, we're getting a glimpse into her life. We are seeing things, things that are making the public really concerned yet at the same time, we're getting nothing in terms of there's no media, there's no uh, documentary, there's no footage of her. There's everything that's being put out is only being put out from her account. That is the only time we see anything of her. And it's different because yes, there was a point when her social media went completely dark and we really got absolutely nothing. But even this to me still feels like nothing because I know that we get to see her on our grid, but it still feels eerily minimal because there's no, it's so curated. You know what I mean? Exactly. I think what everyone's waiting for now is Brittany to, and I don't believe this will happen until the conservatorship is done. And I don't know if it necessarily will ever happen. Um, but I think everybody's now waiting for Brittany to come out and tell her own story in her own words without any control, outside forces, nothing. For Brittany to come forward and be like, this is what's going on. This is what happened. This is what I feel. This is what I think. All of that. That's what everyone's waiting for because social media just isn't enough. You know, I will say though, Felicia, who I think in terms of everyone in the documentary probably knew her the best, said that she believes that Brittany will speak. She said with conviction, she believes that Brittany will tell her story, which to me felt, I like to choose to have some sort of optimism or some sort of a belief that she will get out of this and that she will be able to emerge and kind of share her entire experience. Of course, that's the dream, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the other things uh, parts of it that I forgot to mention is the fact of her kids still. And I think that has so much to do with the conservatorship still being in place where she's in a position in her life where she will do anything for those kids. 
And if her only ability to see the kids or the judge is only allowing her to have custody is under the control of the conservatorship, she's not going to be willing to end that because she's not going to risk not being able to see her kids. And something that the documentary touches on is that the conservatorship really, you know, she agreed to it almost in the first place. And a lot of people believe that is because they were kind of dangling her kids in front of her and her ability to see her kids. And that's, you know, her relationship with her kids, her as a mom is one of the biggest storylines in this whole thing. You know, we didn't even talk about Sam Luffy aspect of it, which we don't have to necessarily, but I just, that was a big piece of it too, which what a disgusting scumbag. The, there are so many layers to Brittany. I mean, I could literally talk about this for probably hours and hours and hours uninterrupted and still have a million things to say after we finished recording um, because there are so many different timelines and characters involved. And Sam Lufty is just one piece of the puzzle of the people that Brittany had around her. And it's one of those things where it's like you pick at each individual person in her life and you're like, who does she have? Who is looking out for her actual best interest or who is just in her life because it's advantageous for them and you really don't know. Obviously, the way the documentary presents it is that Felicia is really the one person, you know, I think with the exception of her mom and her sister and maybe even her brother, that is was just in it for Brittany. There was nothing else other than the protection of Brittany. And when you examine everybody else in her life and everybody else that was close to her, no one even comes close to reading like that. No one. And that's what it is. I think that you're just floored at how opportunistic every single person around her was and continues to be. Which is one of the really scary realities of fame in general. You know, people talk about this all the time. You're surrounded by yes men. You're surrounded by people that are profiting off of you. And the people you're around the most are the people that you're paying. You know, it's the, your makeup artists, your hairdressers. Obviously, you're going to form a friendship with these people. But then it goes into how do you know who's really there to protect you? How do you know who's there just typing you up? Who's there because, you know, they're scared to say no to you because it would, you know, lead to less financial opportunities for them. It's a lot that goes into being famous and being able to trust the people around you. And I think that the more famous you get, the less trust you have. And I think Brittany hit a point where she was so unbelievably famous that there was no one around her that she could trust. And she didn't know that. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it was horrifying to witness. And, and we knew every single thing. Nothing in that documentary, for the most part, with the exception of uh, hearing from Felicia directly, was really that surprising. And I actually wasn't aware of the Beverly Hills Hotel meeting when she said that to the lawyer, or that exactly. But it was still so horrifying to witness. I know we're going so over what we had intended to, but I think it's just important to talk about. It, it needs, it, there's no awareness that could be too much for this, really. Yeah, absolutely. On there's so many layers to this, obviously, in terms of the awareness of the conservatorship and just Britney in general. And as a fan, and as somebody who grew up with her, like, I just think Britney herself take away, you know, the conservator aspect of it. The story of Britney herself is one of the great pop culture stories, one of the most interesting pop culture stories. So when you add on this other layer, it's both in a like a fascination and this real helpless feeling of like, okay, what do we do? Oh, the helplessness is overwhelming. The helplessness is 
one of the hardest things to win is because of course you have the sadness you have, you go through a lot of different emotions, you know, you go through sadness, you go through anger, but the helplessness is really debilitating. Not just with this helplessness is one of the worst feelings that humans can feel. We are not built to feel helpless. It's like this, you know, inadequacy is, can drive a person insane. And I think we all just collectively feel so helpless, but thank God you know, her diehard fans have really turned that helplessness into action. And I commend those, those men and women that have been so unbelievably dedicated and devoted and persistent. And it really, it's, it's so important and it speaks volumes for the way that she has been able to connect with people and make people feel for her in such a profound way. And obviously we are for the free Britney movement and we will update you guys on more things that come out, but I am praying, really praying. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing I just wanted to say was, since this documentary has come out, you've seen a lot of celebrities, a lot more celebrities uh, come forward. I think, you know, I know Andy Cohen tweeted about Sarah Jessica Parker, uh, Casey Musgraves posted a story about it. But another interesting thing is that there were a lot of posts about Free Britney that her boyfriend had liked, and I believe he had storied something and immediately taken it down. So that was something that came in the aftermath of this that was brand new because I don't think we've ever seen him acknowledge anything. Well, people don't really, there's always been questions on like, what side is he on, right? Like, which is a totally fair question. We don't really know much about their relationship. So is it that like, he really is on her side or it's kind of like he's in this picture almost set up more so by whatever the powers that may be to kind of paint a certain picture. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is he, there's always that question, which it would be for anybody that's in the situation when you know nothing is like, is he profiting too? So I think even just a smidgen of acknowledgement that he recognizes what's going on feels a little bit validating or feels a little bit comforting to some of the people that have so many questions about this. Absolutely. Yes. So I know we're all kind of operating at a different skill level when it comes to makeup. Like I have some friends who they do their makeup and it looks like they got it professionally done. I have others who know nothing about any products. And then I would say I'm somewhere in the middle, like by no means am I very skilled, but I think I can hold my own. And in terms of my everyday, I'm just doing mascara, lip gloss, and maybe a little bit of highlighter on my inner corner. So if I'm only using a few products, I need them to be excellent. And I've recently been very into the Thrive Cosmetics mascara which I'll tell you about in a second, but just in general, a note on the company. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive, which I just love knowing that I'm buying from a company that does that. And in terms of their mascara, so it's the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. You guys have seen that. It's the viral turquoise tube. I've saw it all over social media before I ever started using it. And it's a unique formula that creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. It's also super easy to remove. So it slides right off with warm water. It doesn't leave smudges. And the ingredients are really nourishing. So they support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. It really just gets the job done. Like you will see what I mean when you try it. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash CBC. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash CBC for 10% off your first order. For the next thing we're going to be talking about, I first just want to give a trigger warning for uh, sexual abuse. We're going to briefly talk about the whole Army Hammer situation. To be honest with you, we had kind of delayed even starting recording this podcast today because 
it had been circulating that an article coming out about ARMY was coming out this morning and that it was going to be really devastating and was potentially the cause for WME and his publicist dropping him, which I know, of course, a lot of people's first reaction is like, it took that, was everything that has come out thus far not enough? But that was the speculation. And we've heard, I know it's been on Dumois, but we've also heard personally that there is going to be a piece coming out. I don't know anything really more about that. And I can completely envision us ending this podcast, sending it to our producer, and then the article breaking and us coming back on to talk about it. But I really don't know, you know, what is coming out there. I know House of Effie had posted and then deleted for anybody who's just new here, House of Effie is one of the alleged victims in the case, and she's kind of been consolidating a lot of the information from other victims. And she had posted basically saying she knows what's coming out. And it's really terrible. I don't know. It's one of those things where we're kind of it's waiting game right now to see what that next piece is going to be. Um, the reason that I believe that it's definitely going to be something bigger than, you know, what we've heard about already is because the victims themselves house of effie obviously is saying you know like this is more than what we've seen and obviously what we've seen already is so awful and terrible that it's kind of hard to imagine that there's more to this that could be worse um but that's the direction that it's pointing in um but i until it breaks we really don't know what it's going to be at there's obviously a lot of people talking on the on twitter about it and on instagram about it and saying you know what they think it is, but I don't think anybody really knows yet. We're all kind of just waiting for that to drop. Yeah, we're definitely waiting. And like I said, I could definitely see it coming out uh, after we already recorded this. But in that case, we would come back on and and talk about it. I just, by the way, I want to mention a few weeks ago is when we did the entire Army Hammer conversation, which I only mentioned because we still get DMs with people asking us to talk about it. We spent like a solid 30 minutes. And so I highly recommend going back to that episode. But, you know, I just want to acknowledge how re-traumatizing this all must be for his victims. Because on one hand, I would imagine there's a sense of validation that finally the world is being made aware of this like monster-like behavior that you had to endure. But at the same time, it's it's re-traumatizing and that really can't be lost. And by the way, not just for them, also for other victims that have been in circumstances that are similar to this, even remotely similar. So I just want to acknowledge that because it's, you know, I know that it's, Net, net, it's good that this is coming out. Of course, people need to be held accountable, but don't think for one second that that process isn't really triggering and isn't really traumatizing for so many people that have had to endure things like that. So I just want to make sure that we're always acknowledging that. I think we do, but I just want to say it because I think it's important to feel heard. Yes, I'm 100% yes. I also, while we're here, while we're on this kind of making a point like that, is there anything else you wanted to mention about ARMY or can I make a separate point? No, please make a separate point. I just want to say something quickly. Last week, I think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago, we had spoken about um, Paris Hilton announcing that she is going to be undergoing IVF. I should give a trigger warning here, by the way, for infertility. And we were just reading her direct quote that she said, which is basically that she's doing IVF because she wanted to have twins and it's the only way to do it. And we kind of moved on from that quickly. We were more so talking about her relationship. But we got a few DMs, kind DMs um, from women basically saying like, I love your guys' podcast so much. You normally you normally handle things so sensitively. And I was just kind of surprised that you didn't make a point to acknowledge how like Paris Hilton's quote was almost making it out to be that IVF is this very like customizable process that is done as a way to get exactly the type of kid that you want, basically. More so saying like that was an opportunity to acknowledge the struggles that so many women face undergoing IVF. And I just want to say like, I'm not too prideful to 
admit that, yeah, we probably should have said that. And I absolutely do not think that Paris Hilton's experience is one that is indicative or representative of what most women go through, although that is her choice and I respect any woman's choice. And the last thing I'm ever going to do is bash Paris Hilton for that. I think any woman that makes any choice about her body is respected and not something I'm going to comment on. But I do just want to acknowledge, absolutely, IVF, I know people very personally, I've never undergone it myself, um, but that have gone through it and is one of the most not only financially draining and physically exhausting, but also emotionally draining processes can be potentially. It's a beautiful gift that obviously science has allowed us to do that. But I just want to say yes to those women that are either undergoing it, thinking about undergoing it, know someone, don't think that you know we are not um, hearing you and seeing you because I recognize that the majority of IVF journeys are not at all similar to what Paris was describing. So I just want to make that acknowledgement. Nobody was like, wasn't like that we did anything bad, but it was, it was, you're right. It was an opportunity where we could have made that point. And I didn't, cause I think we just so quickly switched to Paris Hilton's relationship. Um, so I just want to make that point just to make any woman feel heard that is going through that. Absolutely. Yes. I want to talk about this Aaron Rodgers, Shailene Woodley situation. I never thought I would say yes to those two people, but yeah, I really do. So for anybody unaware, let me just kind of catch you up to speed. Basically, news had broke earlier this week that Shailene Woodley and Aaron Rodgers were dating. It was confirmed by E! News um, saying they were in a long-distance relationship. A source said, quote, They have kept things private and low-key. They have seen each other and been in touch. They continue to talk and see each other when they can. They're both focused on their careers, but they also make time for each other. So... I think at first people were just kind of confused by that because we had no idea that they were dating. It's not the most shocking matchup. Like I could see it, but I just had no idea. But then he was giving a speech on Saturday night when he was accepting his 2020 MVP award. And in the speech, he shouted out his fiance, kind of, I guess, alerting to the public that he was engaged. So then everybody's like, does that mean that Aaron Rodgers is engaged to Shailene Woodley? Like, holy shit, basically. I guess that's kind of what it means. Like that TikTok sound that's like, two plus two is four. If one plus one is four, two plus two is four. What the fuck? Like, what is this shit? Right, exactly. It's like, okay, confirmed you're dating Shailene Woodley and confirmed out of your mouth you have a fiance. So not even confirmed that he's dating Shailene Woodley. I mean, E! News confirms it. It's more like the reason it's confusing is because it's speculated that he's dating Shailene Woodley, confirmed that he's engaged by himself. That's what I'm saying. It was kind of like, how did we get from point A to point B? But, you know, it's not like it's just Us Weekly, like in a newsstand, casually saying that he's dating Shailene. A lot of very reputable outlets have come out saying that. So when there's smoke, there's fire. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm just saying it's so weird to me to not confirm a relationship that's being alleged but then confirm that you're engaged without it being clear who you're engaged to. Because the way it also could be perceived is that it was like a Demi Lovato thing where she was recapping her year and she was like, oh, I got engaged. I got unengaged. Like it kind of could have read like he was engaged at some point and we didn't know it to like Danica Patrick, who was dating before. Then he was unengaged and now he's dating Shailene. Like it was all very unclear. It was very confusing. I mean, you guys know he dated Olivia Munn from 2014 to 2017. He dated Danica Patrick from 2018 to 2020. And Shailene Woodley, kind of the only relationship, or I guess the most recent relationship that only ended in April of last year was with this Australian rugby player, Ben Volavola. So I just, yeah, I, I was blindsided by this, to be honest. The reason that I said earlier that I was more shocked than uh, I thought I would be was because 
And I mean this kindly, I don't really care that much about either of them. Like I'm not really that invested in either of their lives. I think they're both really talented. I just like, I don't know, they're not the celebrities that I care the most about. So I can't believe how much I care. It's because it's so random. Like every so often, I don't know if you feel this way, but every so often there's a celebrity relationship that emerges where you're like, how the fuck did those two people even meet? Yeah, there's just a lot of unanswered questions. So we were just as confused as all of you, but that is the most recent update that we have. And we will keep you posted absolutely as as we find out more, right, Julie? Absolutely. I think we're going to have to go to my dad for information on this one. Oh, because he's such a Packers fan. Yeah. That would be a real uh, role reversal. He would be – if I had to call him and ask him <laughs> – for what was going on and for details in a situation, I think he would be the happiest person in the entire world. People have so many different reasons for wanting to learn a new language. Maybe you have an upcoming trip or just want to pick up a new hobby or a skill or just connect with a new culture. I know for me, when I was abroad in Barcelona in college, I'm not going to say that I was fluent in Spanish, but I definitely got to the point where I felt really confident conversing. And when I got home, my dad said to me, Emmy, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. And he was so right. Like I entirely lost it. So Rosetta Stone has been really helpful for me. So if you are in that same boat or you want to learn a new language completely, want to brush up your skills, whatever it is, I want to tell you about Rosetta Stone because they're the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it really kind of immerses you in the language that you want to learn. So first of all, they're the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. So they immerse you in many ways. First of all, there's no English translation. So you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which in my experience, I know I'm getting it when I start to think in the language. It's an intuitive process. So you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. And it's designed for long-term retention. Also, in terms of speech recognition, they have a built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation and it's convenient. So desktop and app options with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. And it's an amazing value. You're getting lifetime access to all 25 language courses Rosetta Stone has to offer for 50% off, which is a steal. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Comments by Celebs listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash comments. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash comments today. Okay, moving on to the Kardashian recap. Listen, I don't know the amount of legitimacy to these reports, but I know on the Kardashian bonus show last week, we had spoken about that video of Kim's closet where she said she now has a Skims showroom. And that was speculated that that's where Kanye's closet used to be. And like, it seems like the separation is kind of uh, really ramping up. But the report this week is that they're no longer speaking. They're prepared for divorce, et cetera, that he's kind of done with it too. I don't know. Like, I really don't know. But I do think based on Kim's social media presence, she seems to be a little bit more heading in that direction, although I don't think that that's necessarily a good indicator. Yeah, and there were reports or pictures of all of his stuff being moved out of the house, I think specifically like hundreds and hundreds of pairs of sneakers. Um, So that's kind of the latest update there. There was a really interesting TikTok that was circulating. I'm sure you saw. Yes, I did see that. I'm actually going to put the link to that TikTok in the description so that anybody who is curious about it can watch it because it was a great watch. But basically what this woman was saying is she is much more well-versed on you know divorce law in California. 
And apparently Kanye is being sued for roughly $30 million by members of the Sunday service choir for, you know, labor and unpaid wages, et cetera. But she was saying that in California, the date of separation is so unbelievably crucial because that's as far back as they can go in terms of assets. So she was basically kind of speculating that one of the reasons that maybe Chris could have gone to the media to drop this news of separation at the time that she did was maybe because that lawsuit for Kanye was coming out and they, she wanted the record to show basically that the separation happened prior to that happening. That's kind of the point that she was making. I'm going to put the, the link in the description. That was interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. It was basically like in California, date of separation is really important, but it's also really hard to prove. So in this case, one of the things that could be being done is that by announcing the separation, you now have a specific date that you can, you know, allege back to. So that it was really interesting. I think that everything that comes out in terms of the divorce and what's going forward has been obviously really slow and really non-detailed, but very interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's the benefit. Like, I know in so many ways, the constant media attention is a hassle. But in that particular example, if that was the truth, that's one circumstance where like, it's so beneficial because your average person getting separated does not have tens and tens of articles to back up their point, you know? Oh, yeah. Listen, the media and celebrity will always be a symbiotic relationship in terms of it is so advantageous for them in so many ways to be able to use the media in the way that they need it to be used. A lot of ways it is a horror for them and is so detrimental in in so many things that they do, but celebrities need media. They need it for relevancy. They need it to push their own agenda forward. They need it in so many different ways. Completely. And, you know, there's always that line that like, it's just a delicate balance. Cause I think, yeah, I think oftentimes if you asked would they want it to go away completely? I don't know if the answer would always be yes. Right. If they want the media to go away completely, they themselves kind of go away completely too. So Yeah. Celebrities in general are starved for relevancy, just are constantly wanting to maintain relevancy. It's so, it's fascinating. I never really understood how it worked so much until we kind of got into this world and like saw, you know, I guess we're considered quote media, right? If somebody's promoting something, they may want to come on the podcast. And just to watch that back end of the way things are done and kind of, I don't know, it's it's an interesting world for sure. Absolutely. (laughs) Can we talk about Stas' TikTok? I'm almost scared too. I know. It was such a flex. She had Jack Harlow, Charlie Puth, Blake Griffin, Pete Davidson, Saquon Barkley, Drake, also known as Obs in her phone, Kylie. Julie was like not well. Like Julie was really not well. I'm still not okay. I'll, I'll, I'll never get over it. There's just something about that where I understand that she has all of these connections from being friends with Kylie. That was never lost on me. That was never something that I doubted. The thing with this TikTok challenge is, A, it's only good if you have good people answering. Like, I don't give a fuck if your random friends are answering their phone calls and you're, like, like tricking them. I just want to see who you're calling. The thing with this particular one and the reason why I really couldn't get over it was because these were all people that were answering her. They weren't hanging out with her because Kylie was there. It wasn't like Kylie was FaceTiming them and Stas is sitting there with her. Like, these were all people that Stas felt comfortable enough to FaceTime for a TikTok that answered her right away, that 
was a relationship that was specific to her. And I just never thought about her in that way. And it just blew my mind. Really, like, I, I cannot get over this in any way, shape, or form still. I think so much of what it is with this type of thing is the casual nature with which it's done. And, you know, like we always talk about, it's this, it's this total, like, duality. Because on one hand, you have the acknowledgement of, like, all these people are just people. And I get that. But at the same time, it's Drake. <laughs> like, it's just, I don't know. I just don't think of your average person just like casually FaceTiming Drake to like include him in a TikTok challenge. It just seems overwhelmingly casual. And it's a little bit hard for the brain to process at times. Drake, Blake Griffin, Charlie Puth, like it, Pete, like I, I just, it, it's hard to watch someone go through your dream contact list. That's all I'll say. Let me tell you something. I know this may be a hot take. I don't know if I said this to you. Obviously, you know how attractive I find Drake. Do not get me wrong. But like the one that really made my heart skip was Blake. I mean, they all did. I mean, I can't. I really like I'm having a hard time processing it. My brain hurts. My body hurts. I know. I think Blake Griffin is just so hot. I think he's hotter than Drake. Is that crazy? It's not crazy. Right Right in DM us. Let us know what you think. If you saw me right now, I'm like rubbing my temples. I'm like so overwhelmed by this whole thing. No, Julie was not well. It, it wasn't like in a like a, a fangirly way. You were just like couldn't process it more so like the concept. Yes, it wasn't fangirly at all. Like obviously all every single person that she called me, means something to me on just another level. But my fascination and my inability to get over this was just – I, I didn't realize that was her life almost. Like I, I didn't realize it never clicked for me. And all of a sudden it just clicked. And I was like, all of these people that you wouldn't normally associate together are just people that are answering Stas's FaceTime in 0.2 seconds. Like I, I, we have to move on. I like, really, I can't comprehend it. I know. No, I understand. I understand. I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, anything else that you want to talk about Kardashian wise? Yes. My one last thing is Kim's story today of North's painting. Please let <laughs> me if you think that North actually painted that because there's no way and I don't know what, what Kim is trying to do here. That was like Picasso level shit. Do seven-year-olds paint like that? Is that a thing? I'm not well-versed enough with seven-year-olds' artistic abilities. No. Most people ages 20 and up can't paint like that. That's like if that was her, then <laughs> there's something like – museum level going on like she's a fucking prodigy if that's her that is unheard of I've never I'm not being dramatic here I promise you like there's just no way that's her yeah that was like Monet (laughs) that was like some Monet shit with the little think about what you were drawing at seven we were like figuring out how to make the s turn into like the superhero s by connecting the dots we weren't painting like Picasso scenery no I know but we're also not northwest I know that but like (laughs) <laughs> there's no I'm, I, I just like can't even entertain it there's no way she painted that I know I know but it was just funny Kim's caption <laughs> like what if she painted that I'm sorry like there's a lot of things that are gonna have to happen from here on forward in terms of Northwest art career I <laughs> should not be wasting her time performing at Kanye's um fashion show performing her song if she can paint like that I agree well the jury's still out let's wait to let's wait to hear more specifics how's that that sounds good to me. Okay. Anything else you want to mention? No, I think that's it. Okay. I mean, <laughs> this was like Britney Spears and a few other things that we want to catch you up on. <laughs> Britney Spears and also Ken North Paint. <laughs> <laughs> should, should we make the episode title that? We don't have the episode title anymore. I know we don't. 
Uh, anyway, okay, guys. Well, we love you so much. Julie and I will see you later this week for our Kardashian bonus show. Isabel and I will see you for our Bravo show. And um, thank you for just everything. We love you guys so, so, so much. And I'm really glad that this Britney uh, situation is getting even more attention because hashtag free Britney. Free Britney. Yes. We love you guys to pieces. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you.